Looking for a new show to dive into? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like the full season of FX's epic limited series Shogun, FX's new international spy thriller The Veil, starring Emmy and Golden Globe winner Elizabeth Moss. And don't miss the all-new crime series Under the Bridge, inspired by shocking true events and starring Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone. It's all new, and it's streaming now on Hulu. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. Warning. Today's episode contains descriptions of crimes being committed against children. Please proceed with caution. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. It also goes to show how out of his mind he was. I mean, I mean, my dad, like I said, he was prepared to die. And it, when you're when you're there, you're dangerous. Welcome to the First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Fanick. I'm sitting far away from Alexis Linklater and Billy Jensen. And before we get into the show, this is part two of the Jody Plache story. So if you haven't listened to last week, go ahead and listen. And then you get to binge this one. So you'll have like two hours of the First Degree on this glorious Wednesday. So you guys, we're recording at 8.30 in the morning. This is the earliest we've ever recorded the first degree. We usually love like a nighttime recording. Yeah. It's also 8.30 in the morning on a Tuesday. On a Tuesday. We're not sitting here with There's Bloody no Mary and Apple Spritzes. Yeah. No, no. No, this is not like a fun weekend vibe. Um, we're all struggling a little bit, right? <laughs> yeah. So we apologize if we're less zippy than usual. Which, you know, we got to get it in when we can. It's hard to uh, correlate three people's busy schedules to be able to record this little fucker. It really is. And it's going to be hard to keep the energy up if we're not there to spontaneously tickle attack one another to to boost morale. <laughs> so just one another shit. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> Me and Jack usually bring the energy just fine, Billy. Uh, yeah, you do. <laughs> we, yeah, we don't need you, to you be You guys tickled. are like a bundle of Richard Simmons energy right this morning. We, oh, yeah, this morning, this morning no. not really. We're all struggle. I stand to be tickled for sure. <laughs> Billy, what day is it today? All right. Today's August 11th. And it is, and I just got to do this. I'm sorry, Lex. It's National Raspberry Tart Day. There's too many cooked fruit holidays. It feels like a conspiracy. There yeah. really is so Against many you. cooked fruit yeah, holidays. Because yeah. I feel like we have these conversations several times a year. Mm-hmm. No, we have them at least once a month. Mm-hmm. And that's just a random Wednesday that these fall upon. So imagine all the other days that are, you know, fruit cheesecakes and fruit tarts and pies. The jam makers lobby is just strong. Yeah. It's rude. What else do we <laughs> yeah. have, Billy? It's there's not much World Calligraphy Day. Oh. Okay. Something a lost art. I don't even think kids are being taught uh cursive anymore. No, they're not. I don't think. And then this one's for you, Jack. Play in the sand day. 
Why is that Why for is me? Is that for Jack? I don't know. It seems like a beach thing and playing <laughs> in the sand. Do you know? Yeah. I feel like it's probably catered more towards children, but I'll take it. Why? Because yeah. the picture the picture of play in the sand day has a bunch of beach toys in it. Is that why? Little, little kids, yeah. Um, I'll go play in the sand today. That sounds actually very glorious. So, it's also annual medical checkup day too. So I know I know you millennials. You think that you're indestructible, but you should get a checkup. Yep. Go one one year gyno appointment. One year getting your body mapped. For skin cancer? Make sure they check for scoliosis. You remember those awkward checkups in the closets of your gym classes? <laughs> They'd be like, bend over, let me see your spine. I'm like, uh, where's my mom? Yeah, that seems like questionable looking back on it. Very. Like, what? what was the point of this? Seriously. Right. Well, I think that that is enough of that. So let's turn down the lights. And turn up your anxiety. Because this could be you. Last week, we took you through the abduction of Jody Plache, which occurred on February 19th of 1984, when Jody's mom, June, let Jody's karate instructor, Jeff Doucette, borrow her car to run some errands with Jody. But they never returned. And by the next day, a manhunt was underway to find them. Jeff had taken Jody to Los Angeles, and after a few days, the FBI tracked them down. While the abduction seemed rather sudden, the truth was that Jeff Doucette had been grooming Jody for nearly two years. Jeff, disguising himself as a caring karate teacher in front of Jody's parents, June and Gary, was actually a cunning predator in disguise. Jeff was arrested and charged with kidnapping. As for Jody, he was sent back home to his very distraught parents. But as it turns out, Jody's rescue was only the beginning of a harrowing ordeal which was far from over. After Jody's rescue, he was examined by doctors, and the truth about the abuse that he suffered at Jeff's hands was revealed. Jody recalls what it was like returning to school after his kidnapping. I remember the first day of school, I came walking in the gym, and everybody was like real quiet, and they're watching me walk across the gym, and I walk up to my friends, and they're sitting on the stage, and like a couple of the girls, I could see like tears forming in their eyes, and everyone's just kind of sitting there looking at me, and I'm like, what? Y'all look at me like I've been kidnapped or something. And then they just started laughing. And they realized that, okay, I'm the same person I was before I was kidnapped. And, and they didn't have to worry about me. I was going to be okay. Meanwhile, Jody's parents were in the throes of processing the events that had unfolded. And if you recall from last week's episode, June and Gary Plache were on the verge of separating. And you have to imagine the anger, the sadness, and the guilt that they must have been feeling after learning what had been going on and what Jody had been subjected to. Jody's dad, Gary, took the news especially hard. And while we're on the subject, there's more that you need to know about Jody's dad, Gary Plache. My dad, when he was younger, he worked at Channel 2 WBRZ in Baton Rouge. That's the ABC affiliate here in Baton Rouge. And so he knew all the people that worked at the TV station. So where are we in the story at this point? Okay, well, Jody has been rescued. And Jeff is still in California, and it would take two weeks to extradite him to Louisiana. The media, who was fully engrossed in this tale, wanted to do a follow-up piece to accompany the story they did about Jody being reunited with his family. And as we explained, Jody's dad, Gary, was very dialed in with the local news. So my dad knew all these people. So when it, I was kidnapped and I was going to be returned, daddy told him, he said, hey, Jody's coming back. 
So when I was returned to New Orleans on March 1st, they had a camera crew there filming me being returned and being reunited with my family. So when Jeff was ultimately extradited, the news planned on covering his return. And they intended to capture footage of him arriving at the airport. So a couple of weeks later, the police went out to California to get Jeff to bring him back to Baton Rouge. And Channel 2 was going to do a follow-up story of the kidnapping. And Gary, being the well-connected guy that he was, found out through the grapevine what time Jeff's flight would be landing in Baton Rouge. Well, one of the program directors told my dad they're bringing him back tonight at 9.08. And so my dad had this knowledge. So now Jody's father knew exactly where Jeff was going to be, and he knew exactly when he would be there. Now, the guy didn't think Daddy was going to do anything but maybe confront him or yell at him or punch him. So Channel 2 sent the crew up to the Baton Rouge Metropolitan Airport, and there was two police officers, Mike Barnett and Bud Connors. Mike Barnett had been involved with Jody's case from the moment June realized Jody had been abducted. So Mike Barnett is the one that was with my mother, listening to the phone calls. He came walking around the corner, and they had the camera set up. And there were people that had gathered behind the camera to see, oh, what's, what's about to happen? What, what, what are we going to see? So by this point, Jody's parents had a rapport with Deputy Mike Barnett, and he had sat there with Jody's mom and helped record the calls when Jeff was still on the run and holding Jody captive. And Deputy Barnett would also be present when Jeff was slated to be delivered to the Baton Rouge Sheriff's Department to face charges in Jody's abduction. And it was this huge scene. There was a massive crowd of people, news cameras everywhere, and cops everywhere. So on March 16th, 1984, Jeff Doucette walked off an American Airlines flight. It's flight 595 from Dallas and was escorted by Baton Rouge deputies. They walked through the airport lobby. And I want to give a reminder, airport security in 1984 was nothing like it was today. It was kind of a free for all. You didn't need a ticket to get to the terminal gates. And it's really crazy to think about what it was like and how potentially dangerous it was. Anyway, just to let you know, it was a different time. Deputy Mike Barnett is one of the guys escorting Jeff Doucette. And naturally, he's keeping a lookout for anyone in Jody's family, especially Jody's dad, Gary, who, if you recall from our last episode, said this to Deputy Barnett when he found out what Jeff had done to his son. And my dad said, I'm going to kill the motherfucker. And Mike's like, Gary, look, I understand that's how most parents respond. And that was their reaction, it was to, to cry, to be upset, and to say he was going to kill him. So Deputy Barnett wants to make sure Gary's not there in the crowd for obvious reasons. So Mike's looking for my dad. He's looking at the people in the crowd looking for my dad. And he was looking for other parents of some other kids that Jeff had admitted to molesting on the, on the plane ride home. Yeah, there were other victims. According to defense attorney Foxy Sanders, half a dozen parents called him with similar stories of abuse involving their children and Jeff Doucette. Anyways, back to the airport and this crowd of people gathering to catch a glimpse of this admitted pedophile. Finally, Jeff was back in Louisiana, and he was handed off to two police officers, one of them being Mike Barnett, who we keep referencing. The other, an officer named Bud Connor. There's a crowd, there's new cameras as he's being walked. And little did anyone know, Jody's father, Gary, was there too. Well, Mike, Jeff, and Bud come walking around the corner, and as they're coming, the camera, you know, is filming them. He zooms in on Jeff's face, and as the camera gets parallel with the payphones that my dad was on... Jody's dad, Gary, was standing at a payphone in the background. 
he was actually on the phone with a friend of his, and he was armed. My dad was on a payphone. He had a baseball cap on and sunglasses. He had a 38 snub-nosed revolver tucked in his boot. And when my dad saw his face, he reached in there, he grabbed the gun, he told his friend, he said, you're going to hear the shot. As Jeff was being walked through the airport, a WBRZ news crew followed behind, and a cameraman caught what happened next. As the suspect came through the airport, uh, I readied my camera, raised it up uh, to get a close-up shot of him. As I got a close-up shot, and as he got parallel to me. And he turned around and shot him. You don't mess with people's kids. And we don't want to condone vigilante justice or violence. But fucking with someone's kids is a risk to your own safety. Gary Plachet had wrapped a newspaper around his 38 caliber revolver. And he had actually snuck the gun into the airport by putting it into his right boot. There was approximately a three feet gap between Jeff and Gary when he aimed. And the bullet was fired point blank at Jeff's right ear. Right after the gun went off, the deputy standing next to Jeff pinned Gary against the line of payphones and grabbed the gun out of his hands. It was later revealed the friend who was on the phone with Gary had actually attempted to warn police about Gary's plans. And that call had been made about 10 minutes before Jeff had walked off the plane. And for whatever reason, wires were crossed. Nobody could be warned in time about what Gary intended to do, and he was not intercepted. And you can actually hear what Deputy Mike Barnett said to Gary in the seconds immediately following the shooting. Gary's response, if somebody did it to your kid, you do it too. So what do you guys think about this? And if you watch the footage, it really is crazy. First of all, how close Gary was to Jeff when he shot. And it really was like a covert sneak attack. It was nuts to watch. Well, he was also, um, so he was on the phone facing away from them. So he was facing the wall with a hat on. So he was pretty much in disguise up until the moment right before he shot the gun. Like there wasn't even a moment of him turning around that anybody would have even recognized to intervene in the entire situation whatsoever. So, and then the way that the news people caught it, it literally looked like it was a scene out of the movie. Yeah. And it, it, it. It had shades of Jack Ruby shooting Oswald because yeah. you have a prisoner coming in. The prisoner is in chains. Guy should, but, but it was different because Oswald came out of a crowd. Gary was sitting at payphones, like you said, in disguise, mm-hmm. waiting for that exact moment, timed it kind of perfectly, turns around right at the right moment, and then shoots him. And then kind of turns back around to the payphones, almost to hang, maybe hang up the phone. And um, maybe to put the gun down, too. I'm not sure what he was doing there. But uh, but then then he gets tackled by the police. Yeah, it's it's crazy. And obviously, I mean, we've referenced this footage now several times. An implication here is that it was caught on tape. So what is the news going to do with the tape? What is the cameraman going to do with this tape? The tape becomes sort of a character in this whole story. The camera got it all. The cameraman, one minute after the shooting happened, he had the wherewithal to take the tape out and put it in a bag and put a new tape in. So if the police wanted to confiscate the tape, he was going to give them the tape that didn't have the shooting on it. And he was going to take the tape with the shooting back to the news station. The police arrested Gary on the spot and they didn't take the tape. But now the news station had to decide whether or not to air this footage. The police didn't ask for the tape, but they had to project the 
shooting back to the station to decide whether or not they were going to put it on air that night, and they decided to go with it. The news ran the footage, uncensored, and no surprise, but it made national headlines. Our lead story tonight, a Baton Rouge man arrested for the recent kidnapping of a 10-year-old boy has just been gunned down as detectives brought him back from California. What do we think about the news's decision to not give the tape to police, but air mm-hmm. it? Is it sort of like they knew it would sell? Like, is it ethical to do this? I mean, what are our thoughts on their decision to to run this footage nationally? Yeah. I, when I was taking a look at this, I didn't realize that this was the case. I had seen this footage before back in the day, but um, knowing that the the cameraman hid the tape like that, that's what cameramen are, are trained to do things like that. If they do catch yeah. something potentially, and and a lot of times, particularly now when you're catching, it's, it's catching police doing bad things, but I completely understand what the cameraman was doing as long as it gets out there. You know, um, the one thing about this uh, crime being caught on camera is that you don't see the moment of impact. No. So you don't see, it's not like seeing JFK's head explode or something like that. You don't see the moment of impact, but you hear it and you see right before and right after. Yeah. I mean, is that not illegal for him to not give it to the police? If it like, isn't, I would assume that's considered evidence. You have to prove it. And it could be like, oh, we didn't know. Like there's all ways around it. And it happens all the time. I mean, a great example is is the jinx, right? Like, yeah. oh, oh the, yeah. their story is like it was found way deep in post. They didn't know it existed. Oh, they held on to that shit for months. Convenient, but again, prove it. Like, we can't prove yeah. they held it back on purpose, but whatever. Whatever. All right. So you can Google this like we we're talking about, and you can see it all for yourselves. The whole thing is shocking. But like Billy said, you don't see the moment of impact. So just an FYI, if you do want to watch it. Um, so at this point when he gets shot, Jeff Doucette's hands are still in handcuffs and YouTube actually warns viewers before they press play that the video could be inappropriate or offensive. It really is a wild story. So after all of this went down, Gary was booked and taken to jail while Jeff was rushed to the hospital. And once he arrived, he was put on life support. Despite all the life-saving efforts, Jeff ultimately died around noon the next day. My dad was friends with everybody, loved everybody, but don't cross him. You screw around with one of his kids? No. So I, I wasn't shocked. I mean, I guess I have to be a little shocked. But knowing my dad, no, you don't, you don't cross my dad. But that's because he, he put so much trust into Jeff. He was hurt. He was hurt by Jeff. And then to find out what Jeff had done to me, Jeff had crossed that line. And it was either going to be my dad or Jeff that was going to die that night. There's no denying that this is a shocking case and an even more shocking example of vigilante justice. And maybe not so surprisingly, the community reacted with strong support for Gary. For the most part, people believe Jeff got what he deserved. In a media interview, one woman even said that if it were her, she would have tried to shoot Jeff more than once. Another man said Jeff got justice and that Gary saved taxpayers money by, quote, blowing Doucette away, unquote. Many people not only thought about Jody, but thought of the other children that Jeff had abused, too. Now, let's shift the focus back to Jody's mother, June. What on earth was she thinking during all of this? 
I think my mother had just gotten home. She knew Jeff was coming home that night. She's walking through the house. And you know how they preview what's coming on the news? The guy goes, unknown assailant, guns down alleged kidnapper, details at 10. Well, my mother knew exactly who that was. And that's how she found out. Obviously, Jody was not at the airport when this happened and all went down. And he was 11. So how was it when he found out that Jeff was killed by his father? And did he watch the footage of the shooting at that time? They told me not to watch it. They're like, whatever you do, Jody, don't watch it. I, first thing I did was go watch it. I was very sad. I was, I was a sad child. Like, I mean, I remember going at the, the day after going behind the back fence and I just sat down. I got away from all the commotion that was going on at the house and I just sat down behind that back fence and I just cried for about an hour. Cue the confusion in this 11-year-old's mind. It was just surreal. I mean, here I am with a dude that, you know, I, I mean, I, I like Jeff. You know, I mean, I, I, that's why I didn't tell on him. To see this person that you've been hanging out with for the last year, who you had some really good times with, um, you know, we'd go to Astroworld. Hell, he took me to Disneyland while I was kidnapped. So it wasn't all bad. You know, to see this guy being murdered by your father on freaking TV, yeah, it was kind of surreal. Jody was hurting. The whole Pluchet family was hurting. And on top of that, this case was one of the most high-profile Baton Rouge had ever seen. So the best thing Jody's mom could think to do was get her son out of town. Well, immediately after the shooting, my mother took us to go stay with my godfather in Biloxi, Mississippi. And so we stayed there for a week. I mean, because we had people from the London Times come and wanting to interview us, and we weren't talking to the press. So we just got out of Dodge. Meanwhile, Gary Pluchet was charged with second-degree murder, and his bail was set to $100,000. After the weekend in jail, his friend posted a property bond, setting Gary free, but he still had to answer to his crime. His lawyer, Foxy Sanders, immediately sent Gary to a psychiatric ward because Sanders felt Gary needed to talk out his feelings about his son being sexually abused. Well, he was taken to jail and charged with attempted second-degree murder because Jeff technically didn't die until the next day because they put him on life support. My dad shot him on a Friday night, so he went to Parrish Prison for the weekend. He couldn't get out because the bells bonding were off on the weekend. First thing Monday morning, one of his friends put up a property bond, and he was out. He was taken to a mental facility. He was evaluated for about a month, and then he came home. So on the heels of the shooting, something interesting was happening in the community. There was pretty much resounding support for Gary, and the community didn't want him to face prosecution. It's shocking, and we'll tell you all about it after the break. When I was growing up, I took French in high school, but I could never get the language to stick. I wanted to be fluent so bad, but it never happened. I just couldn't focus and I couldn't practice enough and it didn't work. But thankfully, there's Rosetta Stone, which is the most trusted language learning program. And it's available on desktop or it can be used as an app on your phone or tablet. Rosetta Stone is different. It immerses you in so many ways. And with its intuitive process, you can pick up any language naturally, first with words then phrases and then sentences. And before you know it, boom, conversations. Plus, with Rosetta Stone's true accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. 
Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the first degree listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash first. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash first today. Okay, so it comes as no surprise that I have absolutely no idea how to cook. I don't want to learn how to cook. It's not really my thing. But when I tried Factor meals, it was a freaking game changer. So Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Yeah, two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. So the first time I tried Factor meals, I was actually blown away because I'm like, that's it. That That's all it is. Two minutes and the meals are so delicious. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every single week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, ooh, fancy, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Like I said, they're so easy to prepare. I love them. So head to factormeals.com slash degree50 and use code degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code degree50 at factorymeals.com slash degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. It's almost summer and the best and most sustainable way to shop for a new season is on therealreal.com. The Real Real is the largest and most trusted source for authenticated luxury resale. It's the only place you'll find brands like Hermes, Cartier, Prada, Dior, Staud, Zimmerman, Jacquemus, and more for up to 90% off retail. 10,000 plus new arrivals land every single day from hundreds of brands you love, all authenticated by a team of in-house experts. Whether it's that perfect wedding guest look, a new summer sandal, an updated beach tote, resort wear for your summer vacation, you're bound to find exactly what you're looking for, plus deals you won't get anywhere else on therealreal.com. Visit therealreal.com and use code FIRST at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. In March of 1985, Gary Plachet shot the man who admitted to kidnapping and raping his son Jody as the man arrived at the Baton Rouge airport after being extradited from California to face charges for abducting the then 11-year-old Jody. The community responded by rallying in support behind Gary. Phone calls are pouring in from all over the country, offering both money and moral support. The support for Gary didn't end there. A Gary Plachet defense fund was soon opened at a local bank, and the Plachet family held a jambalaya supper to raise donations for Gary's defense and sold tickets for $25 each. Gary's lawyer said his client would not do a day in jail when all the details came out, calling the case a justifiable homicide. So what would the outcome ultimately be? So what eventually happened is due to the publicity, due to the fact that there wasn't a jury in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, that was going to convict my father 
of second-degree murder, sending him to jail for the rest of his life. That wasn't going to happen. So the DA realized that and decided to offer a plea deal without jail time. Well, my dad's first lawyer wouldn't take the plea deal. In November of 1984, eight months after Jeff's killing, Gary was indicted by a grand jury for second-degree murder. Jeff's mother was in the courtroom pleading for Gary to get the electric chair. But according to Louisiana state law, if Gary was to be convicted, he would be given a mandatory sentence of life in prison without parole. And that sentencing guideline still stands today. Right. But his lawyers had something up their sleeve. They could claim that Gary was legally insane during the murder because he was distraught over how Jeff had betrayed him and defiled his son. So the lawyers were trying to bring the charge down to either manslaughter or justifiable homicide. Everyone was struggling with the situation at hand. So the big question was, should Gary go to jail as a murderer or should he be given a pass for ridding the world of a dangerous criminal? At the time, a manslaughter conviction in Louisiana could grant someone a maximum sentence of 21 years in prison. Today, the same charge carries a maximum sentence of 40 years. In the end, Gary was offered a plea deal for manslaughter, to which he pleaded no contest. They offered a plea deal to manslaughter, and after the psychiatric evaluation, the judge recommended, or he suspended his sentence, and he recommended 300 hours community service and probation. And the judge said, you know, in, in Louisiana, we don't have, you know, temporary insanity. We have specific intent. He goes, most people in their right mind don't go around shooting people 10 feet from a television camera. So, I mean, that just goes to show you his middle state. I mean, he did that 10 or 15 feet in front of a television camera. There's no like, hey, it wasn't me. I didn't do it. The cop turned around and said, Gary, why? Why, Gary? Actually, he went and shielded the other officer from shooting him because if he doesn't block doesn't get in the way that other officer shoots him because that other officer didn't know him. Jody's father, Gary, would serve no jail time for killing Jeff Doucette. My dad, he was one of the most popular people in Baton Rouge. He never met a stranger. He was friends with everybody. He knew everybody. I tell people all the time, my dad knew so many people in Baton Rouge, he could get away with murder. And he did. Okay, well, what do we all think It's easy, okay, in this case, to say he deserved it, one less criminal, whatever, but we see the problems with all of this, right? Yeah, well, I mean, we have this crime on video. There's no denying it. He's not denying that he did it. So it's all there. So the the facts are all there, then it gets into nuance. And with the, you know, and I think the prosecutors believe this as well, it's just like, is a jury really going to take the side of the state, which really is almost taking the side of the victim in this case. And the victim is a complete piece of shit. Right. And I've literally seen Law & Order SVU episodes that sort of borrow from certain cases. And I think I saw one like this, but in in the SVU version, it was a false confession. And then Mm. this distraught father killed this guy and it wasn't him, you know, and there are other examples of what could have gone wrong here. I mean, he could have missed Jeff and ricocheted and hit a kid walking through the airport. So there's a lot of problems and a lot of, uh, you know, reckless implications involved with this beyond just eradicating the world of one criminal. We can't, we can't go shooting people without due process, mm-hmm. even with due process. <laughs> it's a slippery slope. Like he, whether it's justified or not, then it's like, okay, so now we're taking it into our own hands. Anybody 
like could do the same thing. And then, I mean, the world turns into a fucking shit show. Yeah. And you also have to know something. Louisiana's laws are so different than any other state's laws. I remember right. taking a law class in high school and it was like every other paragraph was like, this law is this is in every state except for Louisiana. Mm-hmm. It's, 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 a, it's, almost, it's a, almost like a different country in a sense. So we have to ask ourselves, did Gary get away with murder? And were his actions justified? Some newspaper headlines actually referred to Gary as a hero. Why did so many people commend Gary's actions? And is that okay? And obviously, we don't condone what Gary did. And like Alexis said, there are so many ways that this could have gone wrong. Gary could have shot and missed and struck an innocent person. A cop who didn't know who Gary was could have killed him because as soon as the shot goes off, you can see the deputies immediately grab their guns. And he could have justifiably been given a much tougher charge and sentence because he was deliberate in his murder, regardless of how you spin it. And Gary may have had this reason to kill Jeff, but it doesn't mean his reason was sensible by any means. And Jody acknowledges this. I am not an advocate for vigilante justice. Look at the Ellie Nestler situation. Ellie Nestler, her son was abused by a camp counselor at a Christian camp. And he was in court. Ellie Nestler went into the courtroom and shot him and killed him. Ellie ended up getting convicted, going to jail. She died of cancer, but her son, Willie, he's in jail right now, I think, for life for murdering a guy who stole his work tools. Besides the example Jody just provided, there are many others where the law did not side with the person who killed someone who hurt a family member. It's a risk, and the odds are not in your favor. And as the dust of this super high-profile case slowly settled, Jody focused on healing and resuming life as a normal kid, one who would go on to excel in sports and his studies. High school... I was a, my senior year, I was a four-sport athlete. I was quarterback, all-district. I was the offensive MVP of the district. I was all-district second baseman in baseball. I also ran track, but I just went back to being a high school kid. And it wasn't until years later, in 1991, that Jody started talking about his experience publicly, which would turn him on to his advocacy work. It wasn't until shortly after I graduated high school in 1991, we got a call from a producer from the Geraldo Rivera talk show. And, you know, it was a free trip to New York, how I viewed it. So I was like, come on, let's go, Daddy. And so they had agreed they weren't going to do anything until I turned 18. And once I turned 18, they, they said it was up to me if I wanted to go be on a TV show. So I was like, yeah, let's go tell the story. We fly to New York. We do the show. So it aired June of 1991. A week or two later, I get a phone call from Mike Burnett, the same cop that was in the airport with my dad. And he called me. He said, Jody, he goes, I want you to hear this from me first because this is going to be on the news and in the newspaper. He goes, we just arrested a pastor who was molesting these two boys. And the one boy came forward and he said he saw your story on Geraldo and that's what made him come forward. Having the strength and vulnerability to share your experiences really does have the ability to inspire hope for those struggling. And this is the concept that the first degree was essentially founded upon. And so that's, that's probably the moment when I realized that in my mind, a free trip to New York turned into me stopping a guy molesting two kids. And that's when I realized I could take something that was negative that happened to me and try to turn it into something positive that I could help other people and show them that you don't have to be scarred for life. You don't have to be some, you know, damaged goods. 
I mean, like I said, I, I had been playing sports. Now I was enrolled in college. So, I mean, I was pretty much your average 18-year-old at the time. Had a girlfriend. That's the moment when I was like, okay, I know what I want to do. It, it gave me purpose. It gave me directions. When I was in college, there was an organization, an organization that started called Men Against Violence. And basically it was to get men as allies to fight sexual assault against women, like be teammates. And that led me to Victim Services Center of, of Montgomery County, Pennsylvania, in Norristown, Pennsylvania. And even now, when I do a presentation or a speech, there's, there's this after presentation kind of little high, this little rush I get to where, okay, I've, I've accomplished something now. What started as a free trip to New York ended up leading Jody to his calling. After high school, he went on to get his bachelor's degree in general studies at Louisiana State University with a minor in psychology, speech communications, and philosophy. In college, he was on the board for Men Against Violence. And he then went on to be an advocate for sexual assault victims, especially for students between the ages of pre-K to college. He spoke at professional trainings for police departments, hospitals, and in 2004 even attended a conference at the White House on missing, exploited, and runaway children. In 2019, Jody published a book, and its title, Why Gary, Why? It chronicles his life almost 40 years ago and gives advice to parents about how they can protect their children. Jody continues to share his message with people across the country by attending crime victim conferences. It's an effort to help people who might be in a similar situation as he was and possibly give current victims the courage to come forward to prevent future abuse. Before we wrap things up and talking to Jody, we wondered how Jody's dad Gary coped with what he had done. Killing a man, even if he thought he deserved it, is traumatizing to say the least. My dad was raised Catholic. I mean, he did his community service at the, the, the Catholic school and church. So he, he definitely had strong beliefs that thou shall not kill. But I think thou shall not fuck my kid trumped thou shall not kill. So did my dad regret killing Jeff? No. Did he regret the fact that he killed a human being? I believe so. I don't know if he ever said it, but I do believe that there were times where, you know, he just wished the whole thing would have never happened. It also goes to show how out of his mind he was. I mean, I mean, my dad, like I said, he was prepared to die. And it, when, you're, when you're there, you're dangerous. When Jody looks back on Jeff now, there's no confusion about what or who he was. He, he clearly was a sociopath because he had no empathy, empathy for nobody else. He didn't care about no one else's feelings. He would lie to anyone for whatever reason to get whatever he wanted. Most importantly, Jody has never let these experiences define him. With the proper support, you can get over this. If you think that's the worst thing, if you think being sexually abused is the worst thing that's ever happened to you, you're going to feel that way. And how you think is how you feel. You've got to get up, but you got to know you can overcome. You can, you can overcome and you can be all right. As for Gary, following the incident, he continued living a somewhat normal life, besides being known as a legend in some people's eyes, as Jody has alluded to. In 2011, Gary suffered a stroke, which prompted Jody to return to Baton Rouge. Afterwards, he was put in a nursing home. On October 20th of 2014, Gary suffered a second stroke and passed away at 68 years old. Before his death, Gary did an interview with ESPN where a reporter asked him a very important question. Do you regret killing Jeff Doucette? No. No. Would you do it again? Oh, yeah. Oh, yes.
a huge thank you to Jody for being with us for the past two weeks. If you are listening out there and you have a story to tell, please email us hello at the first degree podcast.com. Follow us on Instagram at the first degree at Alexis Linkletter at Billy Jensen at Jack Vanek. Join our Facebook group. We are talking true crime all the time by searching the first degree in the search bar and uh, check back tomorrow because we're going to have a brand new episode of killing time right in our feed. And remember only you can prevent serial killers. And keep your friends close. But not, not that, that close. <laughs> happy, um, Playing the happy sand. hot fruit day again. Ew. Shout out to Jared Monaco for scoring and creating original music for The First Degree, producing by Caitlin Cleveland, producing an additional writing by Taylor Rogers, and producing for Podcast One by Alan Santiago. Sources for this episode are ESPN, The Advocate, Washington Post, The LA Times, Associated Press, court documents and as always our first degree guest is always our largest source you ever meet someone who seems kind of off whether it's a creepy neighbor or random phone number that keeps calling you truth finder has you covered you can search for people by name address phone number email and more truth finder can be especially helpful for running confidential background checks on anyone you're planning to meet from online dating apps go to truthfinder.com podcasts for a special offer That's truthfinder.com slash podcasts to access your special offer today.